The following audio is from Citizens Church in Charlotte, North Carolina. If you're interested in getting involved with our family, visit citizenscharlotte.com connect. Our teaching text this morning comes from Judges 13, 1 through 7, and 14, 1 through 4. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the eyes of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. And there was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not borne children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of an angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. And he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughter of your relatives or among our people that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines? But Samson said to his father, Get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. His father and mother did not know that it was from the Lord, for he was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, the Philistines ruled over Israel. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. If we haven't met before, my name is Garrison. I'm one of the pastors here. Good to see all of you. I'm excited for this morning. If you have a Bible, you can go to Judges chapter 13. It's going to take us a little bit to get there. Let me pray for us as you're opening up the scriptures, and we'll get into it. Father God, we thank you for this space to get to be together, to sing about your faithfulness to us across generations. We thank you for the truth that you are a seeking God that sought out every single one of us and is seeking out every single one of us, regardless of the circumstances and what our stories are. Pray that you would be with us this morning as we open your word, that you would shape us to be more and more like your son Jesus. We pray it in his name. Amen. Thanos. Sauron, Emperor Palpatine, Regina George, Gaston, Lord Voldemort. Yes, I said his name. These are all villains, bad guys, probably most of our favorites, definitely the most famous. And although they're all pretty different characters, they all have one thing in common. They all lose for the exact same reason. I mean, you can think about it. Why does, why does Thanos lose or Voldemort? It all boils down to their pride. They all lose because of their pride. Their pride blinds them and inflates their ego so that they overlook this one detail or event that leads the very undermatched hero to win against all circumstances. And by the way, this is like every bad guy in fiction. You can trace it through almost all of them. 
This type of story and downfall of a villain has been told over and over again. It's the story of what happens to the prideful. And we all know how it ends. The prideful fall. They get humbled. And as the consumer of these stories, we're like, yeah, take that, Thanos. You're not inevitable. We even relish in that. We really like it. We hate the pride of the villains, which puts us in an interesting place. Because in real life, pride is not something that's reserved for just the villains. Pride at a base level is an overinflated opinion of the self, and that leads to all sorts of problems. And according to the scriptures, this is an epidemic. Everyone struggles with pride. Everyone is prideful because we're all sinners. And as sinners living in a sinful, broken world, we will sin. And at the core of our sin is a rejection of God, saying that we don't need him. I'm going to choose this thing over God. Trade this for God. So you could say at the core of our sin is pride, thinking we can do life without God. In fact, pride in and of itself is our attempt to be God, to replace him with the self. So the real question then becomes, what, how does God respond to the prideful? How does he treat the prideful? Does he treat them like we treat our villains, waiting for their downfall, smugly waiting for them to make that mistake, gloating over them? Now, even as I ask that question, if you know your Bibles well, you probably could say, well, God isn't a big fan of pride, which you would be right. God does not like pride at all. Uh, I'll give you a clearly uh, put place in the book of James where we talk about pride. This is James 4, 6. James writes, Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. If you look at the book of Proverbs, you'll see a, a list of things that God hates. It's very strong wording. Seven things God hates. And haughty eyes is one of them. Really, that just means looking down at other people, thinking of yourself as better. God hates pride, which is what makes this story we're going to look at this morning so interesting. Because very clearly across the scriptures, pride and arrogance is something that sets people up as opposed to God, God's enemies. Yet in this story, we're going to see that there's actually another layer to this. And I think we're going to get a really fascinating picture of God's character. We're going to see that God seeks the prideful. God seeks the prideful. So if you would, go with me to Judges 13. We're going to be hopping around a good bit because this story is kind of long. We're going to take a look at, at the life of a, of a character that's fairly famous named Samson. But before we get there, I just got to tell you a little bit about the book of Judges. So just as a quick recap, where we've been throughout this series, we've looked at the story of the Israelites, how they're led out of slavery by Moses they wander in the desert for 40 years. Moses passes, and Joshua succeeds him and leads them into the promised land, the land of Canaan, where God tells them to settle. But first, he gives them a very clear command that they need to clear the land of all the inhabitants, all of the Canaanites. And one of the first battles that takes place is what we talked about last week, the battle at Jericho, where Rahab helps them take the city. 
These fights go on for the next 10 to 20 years. They're fighting for a really long time. And at the beginning of the book of Judges, they're ready to settle into the promised land. But there's an issue. They don't really finish the job. They compromise. They leave groups of these inhabitants. And as the tribes of Israel scatter to different parts of the land to settle, they immediately adopt the practices of the inhabitants, the Canaanites, worshiping false gods, instituting child sacrifices, because that's how you would worship these gods. Sexual immorality runs rampant. And this sets the course for the book of Judges. It's really a cycle. So throughout the book, you'll see the Israelites, they sin. God then gives them over to their enemies. They acknowledge their sin. God raises up a leader in this book, a judge to bring them out of oppression. And then there's a time of peace before they do it all over again. It just happens over and over. The big picture theme is summed up in this one verse that gets used a lot. It's really important for Samson's life too. This is Judges 17, 6. In those days, there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in his own eyes. This time, the people did what was right in their eyes, not God's. In other words, pride was running rampant in the time of the judges, set the nation up for failure. So let's hop in. Judges chapter 13, pick it up in verse 1. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for 40 years. So as the stage is being set for Samson, we immediately see that the cycle is being played out again. They've rebelled against God. God gives them over to the Philistines. And now he's about to raise up this leader. Verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah, of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for this child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Skip to verse 24. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. So Samson is born miraculously, and he's called to be a Nazarite. Now, Nazarite was someone who had taken a vow before God to be consecrated and set apart. Another famous Nazarite in the scriptures is John the Baptist. Nazarites had a lot of restrictions and Three that are really important to this story are they weren't allowed to cut their hair, they weren't allowed to drink alcohol, and they weren't allowed to touch anything that was dead. All really important. Keep going, verse 24. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. The Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan, between Zorah and Eshtal. Beginning of chapter 14, see Samson has grown up. Verse 1, Samson went down to Timnah, and at Timnah he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives, or among all, the, all our people, 
that you must go take a wife from the uncircumcised Philistines. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. So right from the start, even though Samson has this sort of red carpet introduction, we also see that there's something off with him. Like, look how he talks to his parents. He's coarse and blunt. He shrugs off their advice. He says, go get that woman for me. And all they say is, hey, maybe not. Their, their advice is completely correct and reasonable. All they say is, hey, remember, like, you're a Nazarite, which means, like, you're pretty into God. Like, you're set apart. And the one thing he told us not to do was to marry the inhabitants. So maybe let's not do that. And he says, I'm doing it. It's right in my own eyes. I know what's best. I don't need your opinion. I'm going to do what I want. I don't care what God thinks about it either. And this posture is going to set the tone for uh, Samson's story over the next few chapters. I'm not going to read it to you. I'm going to give you the spark notes, but it is a lot. You'll definitely be entertained if you ever go read it on your own. Right after this, he takes his parents down to Timnah to meet this woman. On the way, he's approached by a lion. He rips said lion into pieces with his hands. We see Samson's pretty strong. This is the gift that God has given him, his strength. It sounds really cool, but it's also a problem because he's not allowed to touch dead things. The text says he has to hide it from his parents. He then returns to marry this woman. On his way down to his actual wedding, he sees that the corpse is now rotting and there's a hive of bees in it and there's honey and he goes and gets some of the honey and gives it to his parents. Again, touches this dead lion. At the wedding, this is when it starts to get crazy. He bets all of his new wife's Philistine relatives like a whole closet full of luxurious clothes, if they can solve a riddle. The riddle is basically a boast about what he's done. It boils down to what's strong and sweet at the same time. It's an admission that, hey, I killed this lion and there was honey in it and I went and got it. The Philistines go to his wife and they beg her, hey, will you find out the answer to the riddle for us and let us know? So they do. And she goes and gets the answer, gives it back to them. They answer the riddle correctly. He then kills all of them, kills 30 of them, and then leaves the wedding, storms off. His father-in-law is like, that's not okay. So gives the new bride away to the best man. This is all what is in the Bible, not making it up. Um, this results in the Philistines being like, not, not cool here. So Samson decides, okay, I'm really upset about the fact that you guys are upset and you gave away my new wife. So I'm going to take 300 foxes and I'm going to tie them tail to tail and then put a torch in between and then release them into an orchard. Burns the whole thing down. Philistines again are like, not cool. They come back. They burn his father-in-law and ex-wife alive. Kill them. Not great. The Israelites are then like, Samson, you need to calm down. Remember that these people rule over us. This is not Cool. So Samson says, okay, why don't you tie me up and give, them, oh, give me over to them? So they do. He then breaks the ties and kills a thousand Philistines with a donkey's jawbone. We get to chapter 16. Things are calming down. Starts with Samson sleeping with a Philistine prostitute. He has a problem. 
Then in the middle of the night, as he's in this brothel, the Canaanites show up, try to ambush him. He outmaneuvers them. And as he's leaving this town, it says the town is surrounded by this massive wall. He rips the gate off and carries it off into the distance with him, leaving this city completely open to its enemies. So all to some degree sounds pretty epic. Like Samson is very strong. He's got a lot of things going for him. He's blessed. He's been given that strength by God. He's been able to fulfill to some degree what God has called him to, to conquer the Philistines, to withstand them. But we also have major issues with this man, and they all stem from the fact that he thinks he's right in his own eyes. He does whatever's right in his own eyes. So think about the start of the story. He goes after this Philistine woman, which is clearly wrong, but he says it's right in my own eyes. He's given strength by God, but he uses it to kill a lion and then touches that dead lion twice, breaking his vow to God. But it's okay to him because it's right in his own eyes. He's angry, he's violent, he's aggressive, but it's okay because it seems right in his own eyes. He doesn't care about the consequences. He loses a wife over it and then causes that wife to be murdered. He doesn't care about sleeping with a Philistine prostitute because it's right in his own eyes. Maybe the biggest is he doesn't think about the fact that he's endangered his own life over and over again, as well as the lives of his fellow Israelites, because he thinks he's powerful and invincible, and he takes credit for the blessing that God has put in his life. And he thinks he's right in his own eyes, which is what brings us to the turning point in his story where we're going to hone in. Chapter 16, verse 4. It says, after this, he loved a woman in the valley of Sorek, whose name was Delilah. And the lords of the Philistines came up to her and said to her, seduce him and see where his great strength lies, by what means we may overpower him, that we may bind him to humble him, and we will each give you 1,100 pieces of silver. So Delilah said to Samson, please tell me where your great strength lies and how you might be bound that one could subdue you. So yet again, he's with a woman who he should not be with. Another woman of the Philistines, and right from the beginning, Delilah is on their payroll. The Philistines are sick of him. They want to figure out how to get him. So they ask Delilah to do a little homework. What's the dirt? And she isn't even subtle about it. She just goes up to him, um, hey, how are you so strong? And hypothetically, how could I tie you up and subdue you? Which is a weird thing to be asked. But Samson just rolls with it. Keep reading. Samson said to her, if they bind me with seven fresh bowstrings that have not been dried, then I shall become weak and be like any other man. Then the lords of the Philistines brought up to her seven fresh bowstrings that had not been dried, and she bound him with them. Now she had men lying in ambush in her inner chamber, and she said to him, the Philistines are upon you, Samson. But he snapped the bowstrings as a thread of flax snaps when it touches the fire. So the secret of his strength was not known. So Samson lies to her, which I think is really interesting because it shows that he's not dumb. Like he knows. He knows she has bad intentions. And shockingly to no one, he goes to sleep and he wakes up and he's tied up. 
and he breaks out easily like nothing happens. So what does he do? Dumps her. Just kidding, he does not. He goes through this two more times, the same thing. She asks, hey, how can I subdue you? Do this, ambush, breaks out of it. And then one more time. And then finally, she brings out the big guns. She says, Samson, if you really loved me, you would tell me. And he falls for that. He says, okay, tells her about the Nazarite vow and that he's not allowed to cut his hair. If it's shaved, he'll lose his strength. And now it's all about to catch up to him. Look at verse 18. When Delilah saw that he had told her all his heart, she sent and called the Lord, lords of the Philistines, saying, Come again, for he has told me all his heart. Then the lords of the Philistines came up to her and brought the money in their hands. She made him sleep on her knees, and she called a man and had him shave off the seven locks of his head. Then she began to torment him, and his strength left him. And she said, The Philistines are upon you, Samson. And he awoke from his sleep and said, I will go out as I at other times and shake myself free. But he did not know that the Lord had left him. And the Philistines seized him and gouged out his eyes and brought him down to Gaza and bound him with bronze shackles. And he ground at the mill in prison. Samson tells her his secret. He then goes to sleep in her lap. She has someone come in and cut off his hair. And then for the fourth time, he wakes up to an ambush. And still he thinks, I'm good. I'll just do what I've done every time. But he doesn't realize it's gone bad for him, that his strength has left him. The Lord even has left him. God's presence has been driven off, and the Philistines finally get him. And it's bad. They gouge out his eyes, they put him in shackles, and throw him in prison. Now, we can, we can pause there before we get to the end. I don't know about you, but this story just is baffling to me. Like, as I was reading and preparing for this, I was like, I've read this story before, I've heard this story before. Am I missing something? Like, how is he falling for this? Is he fall Why is this happening? Why is this playing out this way? Is there something missing? There's nothing missing. It's all right there. Samson thought he was invincible. He's full of pride, and it leads to his downfall. He believes he's right in his own eyes, and it all catches up with him. I think what's interesting is he's living in a negative feedback loop. I don't know if you've ever heard that before, but he's misinterpreted the outcome of all of his actions as affirmation of his actions, of what he thinks about himself and his life. So he's doing what he seems, it's right in my eyes, and it's turning out nothing bad is happening to me. In fact, it's turning out exactly how I want it to. So that must mean I'm doing the right thing, right? But no, it's not. And ironically, those prideful eyes are taken from him. So here's what I'll say. No one in here has the strength of Samson. I don't care how much you've been bulking. No one has the strength. No one is exactly like Samson. But we do have the same issue as Samson. We all do this, whether we call it an overinflated opinion of ourselves or being right in our own eyes. We are all prideful to some degree. We all struggle with the main character syndrome, if that's what you want to call it. It's about me and how awesome I am. It's 
It's all pride. And if you don't see it in your life, let's just give you some real life scenarios where it plays out. I'll ask you a couple questions. How do you handle getting cut off in traffic? Do you tend to think, man, they cut me off. They must be really busy. They got a lot going on. I'm going to pray for them. Or did you tell them off behind the safety of your windows? How do you tend to handle getting feedback on your weaknesses? Do you say thank you for helping me grow? I know it's hard to be honest with people, so thank you for that. Or do you get defensive and justify whatever action is being criticized or maybe label that person, the friend, the spouse, the boss, the coworker, as toxic? How about uh, when someone at group or in your community presses in on your sin? Do you thank them? Or do you get annoyed about how bad their delivery was? Or even say, you don't really get me. You don't understand me. I'll give you one that's very real for me. Bad at it. How's your response when just something goes wrong in your life? Something breaks at home, get passed up on the job or the promotion, your fridge breaks, your kid or your pet has some random hospital bill. Do you think, I'm, gonna, I'm out of control. I'm really seeing how little control over this I have. I'm going to submit myself to God. I'm going to pray about this because he's the one in control. Or do you think, why me? Again, I don't deserve this to be happening to me. Let's go spiritual with it. How do you handle when the Bible says something that you disagree with? And I'm not just talking about the, you know, the clear stuff, the explicit stuff like sexual sin or stuff like that. I'll give you an example. Jesus said that it's easier for the camel to go through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. It's a pretty clear warning that we should not want money or love money or trust in money. But I live in Charlotte, so I kind of need some money. It's pretty expensive here. And, you know, Jesus just follows that up by saying, well, what's impossible with man is possible with God. So he's going to save me regardless of how much I like money or don't. What about when he says, don't be anxious about what you even wear or eat, but seek the kingdom first and all these will be added to you. Do you know about this economy, though? You know what inflation had done to groceries in 2024? Surely he doesn't. This is all the sin of greed. Baptized and softened by our wording where we say, I just want stability. I just want a little comfort, right? But that's what it is. It's the love of money. It's trusting in money. And we have no desire to recognize that or repent because it all seems right in our own eyes. I'm good. I know what I need. So, sir, we're not Samson, but we all are prideful. All of those things are signs of pride, from the traffic jam to the love of money, subtly rearing its head in our lives. And maybe, like Samson, you don't really feel the weight of that, like you're in a negative feedback loop too. Well, let the life of Samson be a warning. Just because things have not blown up in your life because of your sin and pride doesn't mean that what 
your believing and living and doing is okay or has no cost. And definitely don't believe that it won't catch up to you because it sure does for Samson. In Samson's case, it leads him to a jail cell. All alone, no sight, a complete shell of his former self. And as bad as the physical punishment that he endures is, the worst part by far is the realization that he has, that the Lord had left him. God removes his hand of blessing from Samson's life. Samson wanted to do life without God. He wanted to do what was right to him. And God says, okay, you can do that. At this moment, it's Samson's lowest Think back to that intro. At this moment, it would seem like Samson's life has turned out exactly like the movie villains, right? But this is where the story gets fascinating. Because Samson now has been completely humbled. Everything has been taken away from him. And this is the point where God actually steps into his life. Look at verse 22. But the hair of his head began to grow again after it had been shaved. So we have this grim picture of Samson. He's in a prison. He's shackled. His eyes are gone. His hair is shaved. He's fallen far. But now we get a little glimmer of hope that what's been taken from him is going to be restored. Now, it's important to know it's, it's never been about the hair. Like that's not what this story is about. It's about God's presence and favor in Samson's life. And as the hair begins to grow again, that's just symbolic of God's presence returning to Samson. God is seeking him out at his lowest point. That's where God finds the prideful. Now, I think a genuine question is, if God wanted to seek out Samson, why did he have to wait till now? Why did it have to get this bad for him? I think that's a fair question. I have have two thoughts on it. One, God was seeking Samson the whole time. Every time Samson sinned and his life didn't blow up, that was God's grace to Samson. But also, we have to remember that God hates pride. God opposes the prideful, yet he does seek them. It's just the reality that many times the way that God seeks the prideful is by breaking them. He has to break them of their pridefulness. And even though that may not sound great, it doesn't sound nice, it's exactly what they need. It's exactly what we need. And this isn't just limited to Samson's story. Think about Paul in Acts. He's a religious leader. Later on in Galatians, he says he was one of the best. He's persecuting the church of God, and God blinds him. For three days. He breaks him. Think about Peter. He denies Jesus. And when he reinstitutes him, what's he do? He humbles him by saying over and over again, Peter, do you love me? God hates pride, but he loves his people, and pride kills us, and he is committed to saving us from it. Love how Spurgeon says it. He says, No matter how dear you are to God, If pride is harbored in your spirit, he will get it out of you. They that go up in their own estimation must come down again by his discipline. Which is why it gets to the point it does for Samson. 
The reason it's so bad for Samson is because of how bad it's gotten inside of Samson. His heart is turned away from God. He wants to be God in his own life. So God graciously breaks him of that. He does it for Samson's good so that Samson could actually be able to repent and turn to God. God had to let Samson fall in order to actually use Samson, and he will do the same to us. Now let's see how this story actually ends. Verse 28. Samson's been imprisoned. He's been drawn out into this festival of sorts, like a coliseum. He's being mocked by the Philistines. Verse 28, then Samson called to the Lord and said, O God, O Lord God, please remember me. and Please strengthen me only this once, O God, that I may be avenged on the Philistines for my two eyes. Samson grasped the two middle pillars on which the house rested, and he leaned his weight against them, his right hand on the one and his left hand on the other. And Samson said, let me die with the Philistines. Then he bowed with all his strength, and the house fell upon the Lord's upon all the people who were in it. So the dead whom he killed at his death were more than those whom he had killed during his life. But his brothers and all his family came down and took him and brought him up and buried him between Zorah and Eshtal in the tomb of Manoah, his father. He judged Israel 20 years. So God returns Samson's strength. And he uses it to destroy thousands of the Philistines. And although Samson did not completely free the Israelites from their Philistine rulers, he does begin the process by which will be completed in the first couple chapters of 1 Samuel. And then that's the end of his story. So what do we make of that? Well, two things I, I want to say up front that I think are worth acknowledging. Um, Samson's death does come off as suicidal. I think it's worth saying that. We're going to talk more about this next week when we talk about God and the downcast, but this is not an affirmation in any way of taking your own life. I felt like we needed to acknowledge that. And two, it's, it's honestly hard to tell if Samson repents because look at what he, he's asking for. He does go to God, but he says, will you avenge me for my eyes? Still pretty self-centered. But we do see that God is showing up in his life until the end, pursuing him, seeming to restore him, and using him to accomplish his purposes. But I think we do need to say, scholars are very differing on this. Yeah, we do see God humbling him, pursuing him, and even using sinful people for his own glory and purposes. Samson actually makes it to the, the hall of faith in Hebrews 11. Some of the most faithful people in the Old Testament. So there is some sort of redemption in his story because of what God is doing. So for us, I don't know where you're at this morning. I know some of us, many of us, are like Samson in the story. We're, we're prideful. We're in the middle of a struggle with pride. And even as I say that, it might feel kind of weird to hear that. Like, I'm not an egomaniac. Like, I'm not like this guy. But you are living as if you're right in your own eyes. I think one of the easiest ways to see this is in your spiritual life. Like, I think it's a 
very easy indicator if your spiritual disciplines are lacking that you have a pride issue. Because why do I need to seek God if I'm right in my own eyes? If I've got my life together, why pray? Proud people don't pray. Why read his word? Why go to community group or worship on Sundays? Why listen to people in my community? It's all pride issues. The most dangerous thing about pride is it's the cause for our lack of desire of God. It's the cause for our lack of desire for him to seek us. Like if you've been sitting here the last couple weeks as we've been talking about God seeking the runaway, God seeking the broken, and you're like, me, I don't really connect with that. It's probably because you're the prideful (laughs) and you need this one. I'll just say this, God is coming after you. And that may be a very scary thing, but it is the best thing. It's exactly what you need. He may need to break you of some things out of love. Maybe you're feeling more like Samson in prison where you've been humbled, where you feel like you're at a low point, where life, your walk with God has been difficult. God is seeking you to. Wherever you are, God is seeking you. And we know that because of Samson's story and how God treats him, but really of what Samson's story points us to. Samson was miraculously conceived. He was born to begin the deliverance of God's people. He's given over to his enemies who torture and wound him. He dies with his arms stretched out, being mocked by his enemies to bring victory to God's people. Does that ring any bells? Samson's story points us to the gospel, but how much greater is our Savior Whereas Samson's life was marked by external holiness, Jesus was truly holy. Samson died pleading for vengeance against his enemies, and Jesus died pleading for forgiveness for his enemies. Samson died to kill his enemies, and Jesus died to save his enemies. Samson was crushed because of his pride. Jesus was crushed so that you could surrender your pride to God. Samson died a prideful man, and Jesus died to redeem prideful men and women. And that's why the gospel is the cure for your pride. Because you have to be humble to accept the gospel. Because you can't save yourself. You can't fix yourself. You can't fix your pride issue. You can't clean yourself up. You can try, but you'll be what Jesus calls the Pharisees, whitewashed tombs. You're dead in your sin. It doesn't matter what you look like on the outside. You need God to save you and then also sanctify you. That's the humbling truth of the gospel. But the amazing reality of the gospel is that Jesus did not die for humble people. He died to make humble people. He died for prideful people like us to save us from our sin and pride. So the question is, as we end this morning, is will you be humble enough to let him? We're going to end by talking about uh, the practice that we're going to be doing this week. We're going to be uh, in our groups and throughout the week doing the practice of fasting. Fasting is probably the best spiritual practice for cultivating a heart of humility. You don't become less prideful by trying really hard to be humble. You fight pride by practicing things that make you humble. And nothing will humble you quicker than seeing how terrible of a person you are after missing breakfast. 
So that's what we're going to do this week, is we're going to do the practice of fasting in our groups. We've got resources online, and they'll also be coming out in our guides this week. I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll transition into a time of response. Father God, we, we confess that we are prideful, that in many areas in our lives, we think about ourselves and ourselves only. We do not submit ourselves to you. We do not care for you and for others the way that you've called us to because we're too busy thinking about ourselves. We do what is right in our own eyes. God, we thank you that you have sought us and are seeking us in our sin and in our pride. We thank you, Jesus, that you modeled humility perfectly, that you died for us in our pride. You call us to yourself to be humble, to accept the free gift of grace. Spirit, we ask that you would change us, that you would humble us, that even going into this week as we practice fasting, that you would use it to cultivate a heart of humility in us, change us. Pray in your name, Jesus. Amen.